Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Ruth. The eighth book in the Old Testament. And one of the things I love about teaching the overviews of each of these books is we get to zoom out and see from a 30,000 foot view how each of the pieces fit together. The United States looks different on a highway than it does in an airplane. And I've had the opportunity to fly a few times over the past few months, and I always love to sit by the window and just look down and see the landscape below. And you can notice things from above that you cannot notice when you're down in the middle of it. So that's one of the reasons we're going through the study of the Holy Bible book by book, just looking at the themes and doing an overview of the book, books of the Bible. So let's start out this morning in the book of Ruth. And I wanted, uh, I considered just reading the book of Ruth because it's just four chapters. It's pretty short and I could read through it, but uh, it would have taken a little bit more time than I had this morning. So I just want to teach through it and I want to challenge you if you haven't already done it last week to read through the book of Naomi. It is an absolutely beautiful story. Heard a story of uh, a group of uh, atheists in France when Benjamin Franklin was over there uh, as an ambassador from the United States and he heard a group of atheists talking and mocking the Bible making fun of God's Word and talking about how outdated it was and how pitiful it was and how how could anybody believe that so even though Benjamin Franklin is more of a deist and wasn't actually a Christian he had a high respect for the Bible and God's Word. So he knew that one of the most beautiful narratives in all of Scripture was the book of Ruth. So he opened his Bible to the book of Ruth and he changed the names of the league characters to French names. And the next day when he went to the court and everybody was there, he found the group of people that had been discussing and he said, I want to share a story with you guys. It's a beautiful story. And he read the story of Ruth using French names and when he got done they just went on and on and on about how amazing this story was how beautiful this literature was and they asked him where did you get that from we've never heard this story before it's just amazing it's a genius work of art and he said that came out of the pages of the Holy Bible and you can imagine their response to that but I love how God silences his critics through the majesty and the glory of his word. God wrote this book. I want you to remember that. Through the Holy Spirit, using human writers, God wrote this book. We don't know who wrote the book of Ruth. It had to be after David became king, and you'll see why. So this is quite, uh, quite a while before, like four generations before David was even born. But it reveals at the end of the book that David was going to become king. So it had to be written after that point. Uh, some people have suggested Samuel, which was probably a pretty good guess. Um, I wonder if it wasn't maybe possibly David himself who was interested in his own history. It's definitely a very poetic book and bears some of the marks. But there are a lot of different uh, theories about who wrote this. But we do know that the Holy Spirit inspired this. It has stood the test of time. This is God's word. It has proven to be so over and over again. 
It is acknowledged by, uh, in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian Old Testament. So let's start with a storyline this morning. The storyline of the book of Ruth. The introduction and the prologue. The book of Ruth begins by highlighting the theme of the Judges, the book that we covered last week. And specifically that Israel needed a king. We, we ended last week saying that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we see that happening in our own country. But the book of Ruth starts out by showing us a story of one family and how much suffering and misery and emptiness they experienced during the dark days of the judges before the kings were established in Israel. So all of the men from this family, Elimelech, took his two sons and his wife Naomi, and they traveled in a famine to a foreign land. They traveled to the land of Moab, to the land of God's enemies. They had rejected God. They had been unkind to God's people. And yet Elimelech, to save his family, instead of trusting in God, goes and sets out to try to rescue his family on his own. We find out what happens when he does that. He gets to this foreign land, and the Bible says that they were there for about 10 years. And in the process, Elimelech dies, leaving his wife Naomi as a widow. Then Naomi's two sons die, leaving their two wives, who were taken from the Moabite women, leaving all three of these women as widows. So Naomi is very distraught and left with basically nothing. In that day and age, she would not have been able to provide for herself in that way. So she decides that she's going back home, which was Bethlehem. So she sets out to return to the house of bread Bethlehem had been under a famine because of God's punishment, because of what we saw in the book of Judges. God was punishing his people, and instead of staying there and enduring the punishment and asking for forgiveness and repenting, Elimelech thought he's going to solve this on his own, and he's going to step away from the land that God had promised to him. So after he passes away and his two sons die, leaving these three widow women, Naomi decides to return and one of her daughters-in-law agrees to stay when Naomi said, don't, don't, don't come with me, just stay here. I'm going back. I have nothing to offer you. But Ruth, the Moabite woman, is loyal to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you stay, I'm going to stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She becomes a worshiper of Yahweh, the one true God. She converts to the worship of Yahweh. So once she returns, we see this loving kindness that she shows toward her mother-in-law. And we see that her mother-in-law teaches her how to survive when she gets back to Bethlehem. So she sends her out to work in the fields. A provision had been made and it was the time of the barley harvest and a provision had been made for all sojourners and the poor 
to be able to go out and reap the corners and the edges of the field. God commanded his people, don't reap the harvest from the corners, leave it for those that are destitute and needy. And so Ruth goes and begins to harvest the leftovers in the field of a man named Boaz. He's from the tribe of Judah, and he's presented as a man of character. And Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, finds out and tells her that she has a plan. And she has a plan for the good of Ruth, also for the good of Naomi. And then we see as we move into the third part of this book, Ruth and Boaz are on the threshing floor where Ruth is presented as a woman of character. And she receives instruction over and over in this book. You see her taking wise instruction from her mother-in-law. The younger receiving instruction from the older. As God set it up. And this wisdom is passed down. And Naomi reveals this plan to Ruth of how their family is going to be redeemed from this terrible, terrible thing that has happened to them. In the fourth part of the book, we see that Boaz arranges to marry Ruth. Ruth goes to him as she was instructed and basically asks for him to redeem their family, which included paying off all their lands, making that right, marrying Ruth, and providing a, an heir for the men of the family that had died. This was a provision in God's law. And there was actually a man that was ahead of Boaz that could have redeemed Ruth, and he rejected. At first he was, he was going to, then he agreed that, that Boaz could be the kinsman redeemer because he wasn't willing to proceed with what it required. So then in the end, we see this story that started with pure tragedy. This story that was filled with, with death and darkness and hunger, famine, ends with satisfaction and fulfillment. The son is born to Naomi, or to Ruth and Boaz in Bethlehem, and Naomi is restored to life, to respect, and to a place of fullness. At the lowest point in her life, Naomi, when she returned to Bethlehem, full of shame, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitterness. Call me Mara, because God has afflicted me. My life is bitter. And she acknowledged that she had experienced punishment and correction in her life, but she had no idea how God was going to redeem her story. I really challenge you to read through this book again slowly, maybe multiple times, and just look at the beauty of not only the literature, but also the gospel in this story. Second, I want you to notice not only the storyline, but let's, now that we're familiar with the story, I want you to notice a few things about the theology that we see in the book of Ruth. The theology. The first thing that we see in the theology are the names of God. Three names of God are revealed in this book. The first one is Yahweh. 
Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It's the name he revealed to Israel through Moses. And the name Yahweh comes from the Hebrew word for I am. It actually, the way that the Hebrew language is, is written and expressed, it's I am that I am. And God is declaring that he is the one that possesses being. Everything starts with him. Everything else that has being, everything else that exists comes from his existent. He is the pre-existent God that is the beginner, the starter of everything. He's the creator. John 1 tells us that everything that was created came from him. Everything that we see. There's nothing that exists that was not created by God. So this name of God reveals that, and we see it multiple times, 18 times in the book of Ruth. The name Elohim is the second name that is revealed of God, and it means one of strength or power of effect. So Elohim is the infinite, all-powerful God who shows by his work that he is the creator, the sustainer, and the supreme judge of our world. And Elohim is actually plural. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity in the very first verse, the first chapter of the Bible. Further down in Genesis chapter 1, I believe it's verse 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image. It comes from this plural Elohim, which declares God's, God's work and his power. El Shaddai is another name that is revealed two times in the book of Ruth, and it means the all-powerful and all-sufficient God. The all-powerful and the all-sufficient God. I want you to think back about Ruth. When Ruth declared your God will be my God. That one declaration changed the course of her entire life because everything she needed was found in God. Everything she could ever hope for, everything her heart longed for, the redemption that she required was found in God. And when she declared, your God, Yahweh, Elohim, El Shaddai, your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to be my God. In that moment, she declared that she would find redemption, salvation, provision, because God is all sufficient for who she is. Guess what, church? He's all sufficient for us, too. We have needs, emotional, spiritual, physical needs, needs we don't even realize Things that are so deep inside of us that have taken root and they become a part of who we are, a part of our character. It needs to be redeemed. And our redemption is found in Christ when we bow our knee to God and we declare our faith in him and our trust in him. That's the first step. That's the first movement in a direction that's going to set everything else in our life and our world right. It begins with that. I had an incredible conversation with Matt yesterday about how he came to faith and how he realized that there had to be a creator. 
That there had to be an almighty God who made everything. And when he placed his faith in God, it began this journey in his life. He became a part of a family. There's a new identity. And it leads to things you don't even realize. My dad and my mom were hippies back in this, the 70s. I've shared this story with you guys before. But when they trusted in Jesus Christ, they had no idea what their life was going to look like. And my dad's story was a lot like Abraham's story. God picked him up out of the middle of his family and his friends and his land and everything he knew in Pensacola, Florida, and moved him to Louisiana and then to North Georgia. And for 45 years, my dad and mom have been serving God in the ministry. They've raised three children and ministered to thousands of boys and church members. God has used my mom and dad in powerful ways. But it all started with placing their faith and their trust in God. We see that in this book, that God was all that Ruth needed. We also see not just the names of God, but the sovereignty of God. All throughout this story, God is working things out according to his eternal plan. He was going to send his son Jesus, and this story is connected with that. This story is in the Bible because it tells us something that is an important part, an integral part of the plan of God. And we see God's sovereignty seemingly in insignificant details through tragedy, through sin, through suffering, through disobedience, through humility, through repentance. God's plan is worked out in the day-to-day situations of life and God is still working out his plan in our lives and through our lives we don't see it in every way we we can't fly over the top of our lives from 30,000 feet and see the tapestry that God's weaving we usually see one thread at a time and it usually looks like just this chaos and this mess but God is doing something in our lives the same way that he's doing in Ruth's life if we submit to his lordship and if we trust in him and follow him, he wants to do so much more for us than we could ever hope for ourselves. We see his sovereignty. We also see the freedom of God. God is free in his wisdom and his sovereignty and his love and his mercy to show grace to whomever he decides to show grace. God does not have to answer to us. He says he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. He acts according to his wisdom, according to his character, and he's free to show grace even to sinners. Because that's all he has to choose from. Let's just be honest. We're all sinful. He also is free to execute judgment. We dealt with this in the book of Joshua. So many people today are talking about the injustice of God and the God of the Bible, how he, how he could not be the true God because of the things that he does. It doesn't line up with what God should be. And I want to tell you this morning that God is free to show mercy and God is free to execute judgment. He is God. He's in control. He's all powerful. He's all wise. We can't judge him. We can't stand in judgment on him. He's also free to demonstrate loyal love. He does this by showing grace to people who did not deserve it. 
and he continues to love them in ways that, that just are unimaginable. The fourth thing that we see is the faithfulness of God. God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Judah in this book. And we see God fulfilling his promises all the way up through the time of David in this one book. It's amazing. So let's look at the themes of this book. I've already touched on a couple of them and mentioned a few of them. But the first theme I want you to notice is the importance of Scripture. In this book, we see multiple places where Scripture is a key theme. So Israel forgot and forsook Scripture when they started worshiping idols. From one generation, I told you last week, from one generation to the next, they forgot God. They forgot his word. They forgot about scripture. And they began worshiping like the pagans worshiped. They took the idols of the surrounding lands. And this is what led to the judgment of the famine. Because in Deuteronomy, God declared that if you follow me and trust me, I will bless you. But if you forget about me, forsake me, worship idols, I will bring hunger and famine. And I will curse you until you return back to me. And the reason that we see this whole story being initiated in the book of Ruth is because Israel had disobeyed. If they had only read scripture, if they had only obeyed God's word, but you can't obey God's word if you don't know God's word. That's why it's so important for disciples of Jesus Christ to be people of the book, to know God's word for themselves. Secondly, we see that Elimelech disobeyed when he took his family to Moab. First of all, the Bible tells us that we are to find, the children of Israel were to find their salvation in God. They were to trust in God, not in idols. They go to a foreign land to find rescue in this land that is worshiping false idols. God also told his people to avoid Moab. Because they had refused to help Israel when they came out of Egypt. Israel had asked to pass through the land. And instead of blessing them and allowing them to purchase food and water, they rejected them. Basically said, we hope you die. And so God cursed Moab. And if Elimelech had known God's word, he could have obeyed it. But it's possible that he knew what he was doing was wrong, but he did it anyway because of how dire the circumstances are. And we need to remember in our lives, it's always right to obey God. It's always right to obey his word. We can't see what's going to happen 10 years down the road. I heard a preacher say one time, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. Elimelech had no idea where this one sin was going to lead him. I can testify from my own life. I had no idea how much a sin that I did in my childhood could affect and reverberate throughout my life. Sin has consequences. Thankfully, God can redeem us from consequences. But many times he allows those to continue even after we begin to follow him. Third, we see that Boaz knew and obeyed scripture. He is blessing the foreigner 
and blessing the poor and the widows by harvesting his field the way the Bible said to do it. He's also willing to redeem this family even though it's at great cost and great difficulty. He's willing to redeem this family and show the kindness of God and the love of God to these two widow ladies in obedience to what God's word commanded him to do. It was his responsibility to do this. It was the responsibility of the other person to do it and he rejected. But we see Boaz stepping in and obeying God's word. We also see there's a, another important in the theme in this book, and that is redemption. This whole story is about redemption. God takes what's broken, and he redeems it. He takes what's dead, and he raises it to life. He takes what's hopeless, and he breathes hope and peace and joy into the middle of hopeless situations. It's a story of redemption. Another theme that we see is that God includes outsiders in his plan. This Moabite woman who was part of this cursed, idol-worshiping people showed more integrity than her husband and father-in-law and brother-in-law and shows more integrity than the people in her nation that she's surrounded by. And then when she goes back to Bethlehem in Israel, she shows integrity there. She is an outsider, yet God gives us a glimpse of how he's using his plan to bless all the nations of the world. It's amazing. His plan includes reaching outsiders, all nations. He chose Israel in order to bless all the nations of the world. Another theme that we see in this book is the Hebrew word hesed. You've probably heard this before, but the word hesed describes a sense of love and loyalty that inspires mercy and compassion towards other people. In this story, we see this hesed spelled out, not by God just saying, hesed is important, you need to do this. No, instead of saying that, he tell, shows us a story of how beautiful it is and how amazing it is when people show the kind of hesed love that God shows toward us. Hesed is found around 250 times in the Old Testament and it expresses an important and essential part of God's character. God loves us with a hesed love. He's abounding in, he's filled with love faithfulness, unfailing love, faithful love, steadfast love, loyal love. Hesed is also often described as the mercy and the compassion of God. The very message of the gospel includes Hesed love, where God chooses to forgive through the sacrifice of Christ. He chooses to forgive sinful people. So God's Salvation is rooted in Hesed. It shows the disposition of God's heart toward his people and toward outsiders. God's love extends beyond duty. His love extends beyond expectation. He loves us 
with an abounding love that is beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And His love restores us, forgives us, makes a relationship with Him possible, and comes to us as a free gift based on the has said love of Christ where He shed His very blood to redeem us from God's wrath. Hased is a very major theme in the book of Ruth. The next theme that we see, and it's the final one I'm going to cover this morning, is the theme of a king. Remember the book previous, Judges, said there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their eyes. This is giving us a clue as to where God is going in history. What the story is leading up to, God is foreshadowing that this is something that is needed. And this theme begins before the beginning. God is king of all creation. And he created man and woman in his image and made them king and queen over creation under God. They were to rule and to reign over creation. But when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole universe fell and was thrown into disarray. And Adam did not rule as a king as he should have. And then when we move into the story of Abraham in Genesis 17, God promised Abraham that through his line and Sarah's line, that there will be kings that would come through their line. Listen to this. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her and I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then when we reach the book of Ruth, we're told that it happened in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this book is an important part of how the kings were established in the land of Israel. So let's move forward from themes to the Christ connection. There are many connections to Christ in this book, but the one that stands out the most to me is that Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz, who was the Redeemer, is a type of Christ. First of all, he's from the tribe of Judah. Next, he's from the town of Bethlehem. He's also in the role of a Redeemer. He has people that are depending upon him. Apart from his action, they will not be redeemed. He takes a bride from the nations, from outside of Israel. Through constant acts of kindness, he honors God and people. He is a keeper of the law. And then some. He not only keeps the law, he goes above and beyond and does greater than is even expected of him. And then finally we see that he is an abundant provider. Boaz is a type of Christ. And Jesus is a descendant of Boaz 
and Ruth. The opening phrase in Ruth chapter 4 verse 18 says, These are the generations of, and then it goes on to list the generations. And it's identical to the same phrase that divides the book of Genesis into ten parts. These are the generations of. And this shows us the importance of how God works through people. And God gives us generations because generations lead up to somebody. A really important person that is coming. The point of the entire Old Testament is that God is going to send this deliverer, this Messiah. And so he gives us the generations in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So I want you to notice something. If you're, if you're in the book of Ruth, go to the very end with me. Ruth chapter 4. Starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse the father of David. And through David, the Messiah comes. The messianic line, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that will sit on the throne of his father David for all eternity and of his kingdom there shall be no end as we see in the book of Daniel. This king came through the line of Naomi Ruth and Boaz. And I want to show you something that's even more amazing. Not only do we see that God deals with outsiders through Ruth's family, but do you know who Boaz is? We're told in the genealogy in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab the harlot, remember from Jericho, who protected the spies and converted to worshiping the one true God of Israel, Rahab's son was Boaz. And Boaz's son, by Ruth, was Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the king. So in this one, 
These two verses in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So we have a harlot, we have a Moabite, and we have David who is an adulterer. And the woman that he stole, the wife he stole from Uriah and had Uriah killed, then married her. All three of these people with a very, very broken past, yet who trusted in God, they become a part of the line of the Messiah. Jesus is a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, of, Har of, of Rahab the harlot, and of David and Uriah. This shows us God's grace and his mercy that he wants to extend to people. So I want to ask you a question. This, this hits home with us, and this is getting into our application. What do we see when we walk down the streets of Asheville? Do you see transvestites and turn your nose up at them? Do you see harlots and turn your nose up at them and think they're outside of God's grace? Do we see, see people marching in parades against God and against morality? And do we think we're better than them? Or do we look at people that are very broken and realize the same God that saved us can save them and change their life? The same God that saved my soul. The same God that rescued me from eternal damnation in hell can rescue anybody. His grace is enough to rescue a harlot. His grace is enough to rescue an idol-worshiping Moabite woman. His grace is enough to rescue a, and redeem a disobedient family and a widow woman. His grace is enough to redeem an adulterer and to bring something good out of what Satan intended for evil. So how can we apply this to our lives? Number one, we need to know and obey God's word. We don't get any further down this road if we don't know God's word and submit to God's word. We need to know it. We need to obey it. Number two, we need to trust God with our story. Many of us have picked up the pen and we are trying to write the best story that we can. About 22 years ago, a preacher encouraged me, put the pen down and let God write the story of your life. And I did that. Every dream I had, every goal I had, I gave it up and said, Jesus Christ, here's the pen. Write the story of my life. I haven't followed him perfectly, but he's been faithful to me even when I've been unfaithful to him. And he writes a way better story than I could ever write or that you could ever write. Trust him with your story. He is a redeemer. Number three, we should image God through kindness. God's has said love flows through us. 
How many cups of water have we given to someone in the name of Christ? How many acts of kindness? How many people have we blessed with our words, with our actions, by serving them and loving them the way that God serves and loves us? You know, your actions a lot of times speak a lot louder than words. We need to verbalize and speak the gospel. We need to share God's love. We need to know our Bible and speak the truth of the Bible in everyday conversations. But we also need to back it up with truth that comes not out of our mouth, but out of our hands and our feet and our actions. One of the ways that we image God to this world and put his image in us on display is through acts of loving kindness. Showing mercy. Extending grace. And then number four, one of the greatest applications we can have from this sermon is that we need to submit to King Jesus. This whole story is of how King David, the godly chosen king of Israel, how David came into existence. Ultimately leading to how Jesus came into existence in this world as a man. Jesus existed throughout all of eternity as God the Son. But he became a man at a point in time. And he was born of the Virgin Mary. And the gospel is that he lived a sinless life. He died as a substitute for our sins. He rose from the grave And he ascended back into heaven, commissioning his church to go into all the world and make disciples. And he offers salvation to all who believe in him. Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That is the gospel. The gospel story is powerful. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greeks, to the outsiders, to the outcasts to the Gentiles, to us. Four short chapters. One beautiful story that's connected to every other book in the Bible. And it all leads up to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. God, I stand in awe of how beautiful you are and how beautiful your works are. God, this story, this narrative, this work of art, this history, it testifies of your greatness. God, this is greater than any story any man could ever compose on his own. Because God, this story was born in your eternal plan. And God, this story... It not only includes King David, it not only includes King Jesus, but this story includes me. This story includes all who believe in Jesus by grace through faith. This is my history. I am a descendant of Ruth through the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for your redeeming work. Thank you for being our Redeemer. Thank you for dying on the cross to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from hell, to rescue us from destruction and wrath. And for God redeeming us 
to such a high and holy calling. We are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in these things. Lord, may our lives reflect and image you to this world, showing them how glorious you are. God, give us a love, a said love for outsiders. May we show compassion, loving kindness, faithful, steadfast, loyal love that you've showed to us. May we show that to other people. And Lord, most importantly, may we show it to one another. May we love one another. And may that one defining mark Show the world who we truly belong to. Lord Jesus, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.